Today's guest, Amiel and Stratos, we did a reward episode and a deep dive on compensation and all related topics. What do you think about sign-on bonuses? Ultimately, it goes back to what is your talent strategy? Where do you try to pinch talent from? So uh, if you're a small organization and uh, you try to take somebody from a much bigger player, so you do a, a like uh, I used, I tend to call them an overhire sometimes to go in and to troubleshoot the challenges you're facing from Monday morning. This person has other financial commitments within that larger organization. So you need to buy them out. But to go in and to say, whoever comes in, there you go. It's a golden handshake. Maybe not the most smart, smart way to, to spend your money. It's also part of the reward strategy as well, right? So for example, I've seen some people use it as a, let's call it a top up. So, you know, you're hiring me, I want 120, but you'll say, here's 110, and then we pay you 10 grand as a sign-on bonus. So I don't like them personally. I am a fan of the buyouts though. And again, as Strato said, spot on, it depends on where you're pinching people from or As a matter of fact, you know, where people are applying from as well, because somebody could be applying for a job and they know they have a, you know, a pending payment, right? Amiel, Stratos and me, we know each other from working on um, similar projects and projects together when we designed hiring philosophies and rewards structures and everybody had different roles. So we knew each other and did a compensation discussion around How is the perfect grading model, if it exists, and what to consider when building out your grading model? Then on the new EU 2024 directive on equal pay, transparency and um, gender gap. Also on what or how to measure effectiveness of compensation incentives, different opinion on incentives, sign on bonuses, and also what rewards professional can do to deal with complex stakeholders and also what makes a good professional or what makes a good young talented great um, rewards professional successful in an environment where they can strive and some user questions so it is a very long in-depth exercise around rewards so enjoy then you can build trust and then you can spend less time communicating and more time just getting shit done. Then I went home and, and thought about this sentence. We basically put it on the table. Hiring takes time. People are trained. How to objectively judge certain situations. It's very, 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 very hard to change things. That was the learning. Entrepreneurs with empathy. On the people side. Today we are talking rewards with Stratos and Amiel, two rewards exper experts on the show. And the backstory is quite nice because we did a podcast with Amiel already. And then a lot of listeners reached out because rewards, compensation, it's a topic. A lot of opinions, a lot of discussions, a lot of views. And also Stratos and me, we are always in contact. And he told me, hey, cool podcast. And I also have some different ideas. So now we have a new format created today <laughs> because you were so proactive and open-minded about it that we now also have a new format in the People Factor podcast, where we do topic deep dives. Um, and today we start with the topic rewards. But maybe we start first with Amiel and Stratos introducing themselves shortly. Sure. sure. Um, you guys know me before, for the active listeners, new listeners. Uh, my name is Amiel, originally from Trinidad. Um, I'm currently uh, leading up the reward function at Autodoc in Berlin. 
I've been in reward over 10 years now. Um, I've seen it all. I've possibly not done it all yet because reward seems to be a growing black hole. Um, and so, yeah, I'm happy to be here. Cool. Stratos. Awesome. So uh, my name is Stratos. As you gather by the name, I'm uh, Greek. Uh, <laughs> I've been living away from Greece for the past, um, uh, I think, uh, 19 years, and I've been in reward for about uh, 18 years of that. And I've been living in about uh, five different countries uh, over these years, and uh, I've been working uh, in uh, all this, all the type of organizations you can imagine. You know, from the big listed FTSE 10 companies to your little startups to uh, companies that they were listed and they became delisted, consulting. Uh, and at the moment, I am uh, working for my own company, helping different uh, organizations, medium and small organizations, uh, really shape a, a better understanding around reward and make things happen from the reward point of view. Cool. So this, this might this might be a very good Jekyll and Hyde podcast. I can't wait. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I can't wait. <laughs> Emil, we will alternate who is taking I'll, whose role. I think so. Good, good cop, bad cop, and we'll alternate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. I'll be sending you, you know, an, a different ammo, and I will be showing you what uh, I'm going to be the green <laughs> one or the red one. <laughs> Which pill I'm taking now. I <laughs> love it. Love it. So let's maybe start with the first um, topic. So we have some topics from the LinkedIn community, but let's start with the anticipated impact of the 2024 EU directive on equal pay. Is it going to have a positive impact on driving equality and maybe explain what it is about? Ooh. Okay, I'll take this one first. So um, I think it's definitely going to have a positive impact on equity purely from a employee perspective because the power is now shifting into the employee's hands right and so for, the, for those who don't know about the EU directive um, in the EU they've passed the, the let's call it law because they haven't finalized it as yet as far as I'm aware um, that <clears throat> all salary ranges on job descriptions and job adverts need to be visible an employee can request their salary range and see where they sit um, and it's legally binding that we must supply it. And then the gender pay gap, which they haven't said how they want us to calculate it, as expected, uh, should be 5% or less. And if it's more than 5%, if you don't have a justifiable reason, we don't know what justifiable means, uh, you may be subject to fines. So I think it's similar to what happened in the UK in 2016 when they launched their gender pay gap reporting initiative. It's more to highlight where do you have your females located in your business. And so it will have a positive impact because it will change the shift on how you hire. It will also change the shift on your how you treat people along the distribution curve and how you actually look at equity because I'm sure different companies will look at pay equity differently. Some might do it broadly. Some might actually go deep dive into the opposite end, which is, you know, grade, function, team, et cetera, et cetera. 
So my vote is let's do it. I don't know why it wasn't done quickly before. Um, and I say this from my first reward role, which was in a UK bank. All the salary ranges were published on the company's intranet. And so you always knew where you stood in those ranges. And so I'm a total and complete fan. Nice. Stratos, what's your opinion on it? Yeah, I think Emil is uh, uh, on the same side. I'm sorry, Emil. Uh, we, take, we took the same pill, I think. <laughs> I agree with him uh, 100% that uh, it's a massive step forward. Um, and I think it is a big shift uh, on moving now the power and control to the employee or the prospective employee. And it's exactly for the reasons that Emil highlighted. Now we're looking at more uh, transparency. We're looking about uh, less freedom to discriminate. Uh, but again, there are a lot of uh, gray areas, uh, as Emil rightly so highlighted. And these gray areas have to do with, uh, you know, when we talk about uh, how people are paid that they do the same job, it's the same job or, or job of equal value. So there it comes in the the question about what is an equal value and how do you measure a job of equal value? A simple example is, is a cleaner doing the same job with a guy that is swiping the floor um, outside the office? Uh, is this a job of similar value or not? And if the answer is yes, then are they paid in a similar way? Um, and this is where, you know, you need uh, uh, clarity behind that and you need a robust system behind this uh, and uh, yeah the other thing that is going to be interesting for me is that uh, you're not going to have that uh, flexibility from a recruitment point of view to go in and ask the person how much were you earning before and this then say not ah, allowed so you should never do that but it's it's happening it is happening it is happening and this is how in the past you know, a lot of people, they were pegged into different slots. So now yeah. the employee already yeah. knows what is the range or they will what know is what the is the range. Exactly. And then through the conversation, they will have a, an understanding of where they would expect to be sitting within the range for A, B, yeah. C reason. And so the expectations and, and the shift is on the other side. But um, I think the elephant in the room for me is something else. Is like, um, it's the glass ceiling that uh, um, is actually preventing a lot of the female colleagues we have to move uh, to move up their career ladder. And uh, yes, we will see um, a shift in terms of how people are paid across the different genders with similar jobs or within the same job. But uh, I think we need to work harder to make sure that we encourage female leaders to move further up the ladder. And um, uh, I think the specific directive is uh, the right step, but uh, we shouldn't just rest back and say, yeah, we've done it. We're moving towards a more equal uh, what, what, yeah. what are some frameworks or what are some ideas, best practices that you can um, enforce this more or support this? For instance, I had a podcast guest, Dr. Alexander Insam. He is a lawyer. Um, in yeah. labor law. And um, he told me also that the whole labor law system, especially in Germany now, um, it's too outdated because it was designed in a time where the, where the, the employer was 
the big evil giant that has the power. <laughs> but now it's a bit wise. Uh, it's a bit the opposite, right? And um, he he told me, for instance, one idea would be that the whole part-time movement should be enforced way more part-time with similar pay or maybe 80% pay because then, but also for male, you also need to enable this for male because um, women sometimes get better, um, I would say, legal support when they when they are pregnant, but for male, they are left behind a bit. Yeah, So they, they, they don't have an option to go part-time as um, a female, for instance, right? And then it never changes um, the system. So you would actually not start with empowering the female side, but more, okay, how can we design more flexibility for the male side and also make it a bit more acceptable that also the male side is just going into part-time for two, three years when they're having a child, for instance. This is just one example I wanted to drop, but maybe you have others. Yeah, I think, Thomas, you're spot on on that, spot on. And I think he was um, very honest and uh, I agree with what he said. To me, I see it in... in four different ways. First, you need to be uh, understanding that there is a bias, okay? Everybody is biased, one way or another. So you need to address that bias and to see what is the type of bias you have and how do you go about uh, working through it as an individual and then as a manager and then as a leader. And that goes through different leadership training programs. The second has to do with the different policies that you put in place by understanding that the glass ceiling really kicks in when female employees, they're in early 30s to late 30s. And what happens is exactly what he mentioned was um, it's not so much of a family-friendly environment afterwards. So you are juggling too many things as a female employee and uh, you naturally start uh, thinking, feeling guilty that you're failing in everything. So you, you focus on your family and you let other things drop. And uh, I agree, again, 100% with what you said. We need to help male employees come into that. And this means job sharing uh, principles maybe you need to introduce. It might mean flexible working arrangements for both parties. It might mean uh, flex flexible working hours, but formalized and not uh, uh, demonize them. Uh, if an employee goes through that. It might also mean, you know, family-friendly policies, treat male and female the same. So don't say that... So in Spain, I think it's the only country in European Union where male and female employees, they take exactly the same paternity and maternity leave that is fully paid. So it's 16 weeks, paid 16 weeks for the uh, mother, 16 weeks for the father. So it says to the father, you know what? You need to share that burden. It is a family that you're creating. It goes from both sides. In the U uh, in the UK, there is that as well, um, but it's it's flexible. It needs to be a mutual agreement. But they, they have that in the UK as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. 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 And it's different the parental leave, and it's different, you know, the adoption leave. And you need to be putting these policies outside the statutory as a company culture, and you need to show that. Uh, when we talk about diversity, let's be honest, the beauty of having people with diverse mindsets is that you have the flexibility of uh, um, capturing different uh, insight and knowledge from different people. And uh, personally, I'm a massive fan of uh, uh, job sharing. I don't know about you guys, but, you know, Monday, I start with a lot of energy. Tuesday, I still have energy. Wednesday, <laughs> I feel a bit less energetic, but I still have it. 
Friday, my goodness, you know, I'm just uh, thinking. You're doing a podcast on Friday afternoon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, like, in, no. in, in most cases, you know, I, you need to find something to re-energize you. And this is normal, you know. And, and a lot yeah. of, you see a lot of companies, they move to four-day uh, working yeah. structure. And it works. Why it works? Because people, they are focused on finishing the tasks in hand. And then they're happy because they are recharged with friends and family and doing their own thing. So this is, I think, where we need to look outside the labor law as uh, uh, company owners or as uh, people professionals to see what we can put on the table to really uh, encourage uh, the different female leaders to break that, uh, that glass ceiling. And it's not going to be overnight. It's not going to be a law that is going to be passed and suddenly things that will change. But we need to be using this law as a good excuse to push a bit further. That's what I mean. Amir, what's your point on that? You, you want to say so something? For me, yeah. I mean, I want to go back to the original question, which is, you know, what, what, what can we do to improve the gap? And the, I think it's, it's also not only falling on board. So, you know, your talent acquisition strategy needs to change, right? Your, how, you, how you attract people, how you recruit people, it needs to change. Um, reward is there to monitor and, you know, prevent problems. Well, one part of the reward team is to monitor and prevent the problems from occurring. So if we see that the gap is expanding too much, we need to highlight it and flag it. Um, but then I think we, 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 also, we also need to identify the overall company culture, right? So I, for one personally, and I'm speaking from experience, I won't want to go into a team as a female when it's man heavy. And not only when I say man heavy, I mean, is there an environment for me to strive here? Am I going to be, you know, allowed to have impact? Am I going to be allowed to have my integrity? Um, you know, because I, I experienced it the other way around. I went into a team once where, you know, it was 12 females and me. And I'm going to be upfront with you. It was not pleasant, <laughs> right? So you know, it it it, it 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 there needs to be that environment. There needs to have that balance. Otherwise, as Stratos just says, the glass ceiling will always be there, because we're not providing an environment for that ceiling to be removed, and we see it time and time again. Which is why, to go back to your first question, I am hoping that by showing the data, by showing the analysis, by showing the gap. If a company wants to go out to the public and say, we have a 40% gender pay gap and we could justify it, well, <laughs> I, I, how would I feel working there? I wouldn't feel proud. <laughs> I yeah. won't. No. And Thomas, I think the other thing is, um, to Emil's point, and he's spot on on that, um, this is not a, a, a reward uh, element. Mm. This is a company mm. decision. This yes. is a company path, and uh, you can treat uh, the reward function more like a, a doctor assessment as such. Yes. yes. The doctor yes. gives you the prescription, the doctor gives you the parameters, mm -hmm. and then you come a couple of months later to see how you've been doing versus the previous position you are, and you do your X-ray or your MRI or whatever it is, and then it tells you what is the outcome. Yeah. Uh, but then the whole planning is not a, uh, is not a reward uh, planning. Nope. It's a 
it's not even a people planning. It's an organizational decision. Yeah, of course. And it is a leadership. Yep. This is fundamental, especially the bigger the organization gets, the more impact this has because um, it has so many dependencies. But maybe yeah. let's move a bit to um, a different topic because I, we have so many interesting topics. Yeah. What's the best in-class grading structure? Does it exist? <laughs> Stratos, I'll let you have this one first. <laughs> Look, for me... A lot of there is a lot of misconception out there, a lot, uh, and a lot of people uh, when they talk about grading, they think it is just about money. It's all about salaries, and they just go in and they talk about about it. Okay, we need a we need something that's going to help me have that flexibility. I need to pay people whatever they want, whenever uh, I want. So for me. We need to step back and look at it. Okay, what is your job architecture? How do you build the right job architecture? So I will even move back and say, okay, what is is there a, is there a job architecture framework that helps you in the current environment? And we we all three know that uh, maybe things were done differently 20 years ago to how things happen now. The pace of business is uh, completely different. Um, and also the the way that organizations they shift they change everything that relates to that is uh, uh, completely different to how it was 10 years or 20 years ago so for me you need something that uh, the, the question would be okay why on earth to bother to have a, an architecture framework and personally i'm a big supporter of it because without a solid job architecture framework i cannot be talking about you know my talent management. So there is no talent management for me. What is the succession planning? Uh, you cannot have a, a competency framework coming at the back of it. You cannot have career paths. So when you talk to different employees, you know, stick around uh, because you will grow within the organization. You cannot talk to them how they will grow within the company. It is like one manager says something to you and you hope that they will be able to stick to it. And then uh, lastly is about building a uh, a grading based remuneration structure where you go in and you say, okay, I can see some of these frameworks and they link together and, and maybe I don't agree, but I can see some logic at the back of it. Uh, and you know, what would be a basic principle of gradings? What, what are the, the, the fundamental attributes that should be there? That a, a grade is not a human and a human is not a grade. You don't walk around Correct. outside. A, you don't walk around outside in the world saying, "Hi, I'm a director. Hi, I'm a VP." You don't. You don't walk <laughs> around screaming, "Oh, I'm a L1 individual contributor." No, you don't. It's the role that that for me is the fundamental of that is missing in most companies. People think that they're branded with a number or you know a job title, and and that's what they feel. They might as well walk around like Superman and just open their shirt. Like if it's marked on their chest, but so that for me, Look, everything I have something like, still from my military <laughs> service. It's my, every, it's my, every, it's my <laughs> everything Strato said is absolutely correct. The 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 and and to answer the question, Thomas, honestly, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other, right? They all have their pros, they all have their cons. From the Willis Towers, Watsons, the Mercers, the Radfords, even if you take one and you customize it to the business. They all have their pros and cons. 
to me, it's the change management and the education piece that makes a grading structure and a job framework successful. It's not the actual, you know, tool. It's how you use the tool. How have you explained it to people? Do people understand it? Can they then explain it to other people? That is the criteria that answers that question. <laughs> the, the, very straight to the point. So let's do something very pragmatic. Yeah, Sanchez, mm. please. Yeah, but yeah, I want to say something. I think I need also to be fair to the business on this. Emil was spot on. The problem, though, is that all these big grading and job architecture companies, um, they're extremely labor intensive. Yes. And they take forever yes. to be implemented. Yeah. And uh, guys, we've all worked in startup environments. You know, nobody is going to invest uh, six to eight months for you to map an organization how it was back then when this organization will be completely obsolete to how the organization is going to be 12 months down the line. So it, it, you start losing credibility. And this is, Emil, when I think the problem comes yep. uh, on uh, having that patience and uh, being able to explain to people how does it work because companies, they have moved on. And then a lot of the consultants that they come in and they help you implement these gradings, they, they come in on the... I'm an external, I'm going to tell you the basics and then uh, good luck. Uh, I give you a vanilla type of product. And I think for me, the biggest, the biggest, uh, uh, I'm a big believer of uh, using the right tools and the right frameworks to educate the business and work with the business hand in hand. And I've worked with different ones and I have found one that I'm very happy with. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of Gradar. I haven't heard no. that one, though. No. So it's a, it's a German startup, I think, from uh, Dusseldorf. So it was a guy that he came, if I'm not mistaken, from uh, uh, he came from uh, Willis Towers. So he has all this background and this methodology, but he was fed up of exactly the, the frustration that every in-house reward professional has when it comes to implementing this. In case you like my show, please subscribe. I would really appreciate it. So he created an agile tool uh, that is using, it's a factor base, so it qualifies for uh, equal pay challenges. You remember we talked about jobs of equal value as well, that it is important. And so it, when it comes to the assessment, because it is factor based, it is uh, actually qualifying that uh, you use the right grading methodology and uh, uh, it's agile. It's a uh, SAS uh, solution and the other thing that it does is it links you with different uh, uh, surveys automatically okay. and the thing is it's sitting within it, it has a plugin with the likes of Personio, with Workday, with all these type of things so it, it sits within your system so it makes things much easier yeah. I don't work for them but uh, I've, uh, I've wasted a lot of weeks and and months implementing grading systems and I was uh, I was suffering to be honest not using a tool like this uh, not having this in my in my uh, uh, in my arsenal in a way so I was very let's happy create, to say let, let's create something tangible for the listener so um, yeah. let's say in terms of grading 
when we would map all attributes that just should be considered rated individually from a company perspective. But what what is a list of attributes you should consider? And then maybe we rate them by big, mid, low impact, just from your opinion. So first of all, what Amir said is um, communication around the whole grading structure and education, right? This could be one pillar, couldn't it? For me, I would say, yeah, it's part of the stakeholder engagement and the overall communication piece. Whenever you roll out something, you need communication, solid communication. How would you rate the impact of this attribute? High. This is, a, uh, this is the, the highest. That's the highest. highest. That, that's what I'm nice. saying. That, that, that is the highest because you have to make sure that it lands because the last thing you want is just one person in the room screaming, I don't understand this, I don't like this, and then that will just trickle down. Um, so yeah, that's the highest. And then to me, secondly, nice. is the customization of it. Just because we're using this system with 10 grades, that doesn't mean that the company needs 10 grades, right? We, we may not be at that stage of your, your grading framework. We may need something that is smaller. And so this is what I was saying uh, that Stratos just touched on as well, which I said in the previous podcast. Most of these big companies just come in and plant their structure and say, this is what it is. Use it. Yeah. No. What we need to do is customize it. Let's make sure that we are using what we need for this company. And then if you want to challenge yourself even deeper, you might use some part of the structure for one function and some other part of the structure for another function. So I'll give you an example. Um, let's use, uh, I'm not going to call the names, but let's take P1 to P6, right? That, that, that's your grading structure. Let's say in technology, you know that at the stage of business we are, we're not going to use P1. We're not going to use P2 because we are an advanced business company right now. We only want senior people. We only want you know career people. So at that point in time, you realize in technology, you're going to have just P3 to P6. However, in HR, you will want an HR coordinator. You will want an HR administrator. So therefore, you need P1, you need P2. So the grades need to be customized. And that is, if Gradar is doing that, then Stratos, mm, hands up, hands up. <laughs> oh, they do it, they do it. The thing is, for me, it's exactly what Emil said, because ultimately, Thomas, what you need is you need something that is going to serve the organization, not the organization to be fitting within the grading methodology. Yes. So yeah. you, need the, you, you need something... Because let's be honest, uh, the organization is, its its company is different to the company next door. So you need something that is going to be able to tell you, based on certain principles, how your company looks like. And this is ultimately what it is. Yeah. And then how, and as a company, you will grow, you will develop, and you will adjust. So it needs to have that flexibility to uh, be able to help you make these adjustments and changes in the future without breaking everything you have created before. That's that's super in interesting. So let's take these attributes and rate them depending on the environment or you can give a comment to each attribute. For instance, I heard several attributes now. Seniority, company size, company stage, function. How important, for instance, is the function? What's the impact of the function in terms of grading or building out a grading model? I would say, person, can I go for it, Emil? 
Yeah, I think yes. personally I wouldn't put function that it is as important. What you want is you want flexibility to be able to uh, reflect differentiation. And uh, what Emil was saying when he was uh, talking about the functions was uh, purely on the way that the business model is. You require different type of skill sets and different type of seniority uh, in each areas. So if you are, let's say, uh, an IT technology company, you don't need the best in class uh, finance professionals. What you need is your best in class uh, developers. So you're going to make sure that you channel all your resources and your financing and you bring in a lot of experienced people on that aspect. And maybe you outsource the finance completely or, or when it comes to the account payable and this type of components on the finance. Understood. Then um, how, how important is the or impactful is the seniority aspect of it? That depends on the size of the company and what you actually need and the org design, right? Like, Correct. I mean... You know, if it, 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 we're a startup with seed funding or Series A, come on, we don't need P6 or P5 people right now. Right? No. <laughs> we, want, we want, you know what I mean? We, <laughs> exactly, right? We want, we want, yeah. we want. Everyone's you know, a VP. You know what I mean? Everybody's a, a, a CEO or a DI. It, it's, it's, it's remarkable, right? So, <laughs> um, yeah. so I'm the CEO of my job. <laughs> it depends <laughs> on. <laughs> Guys, ultimately, it's uh, uh, we've we've seen it in all the different startups that you have SVPs and everything. It's like okay, guys, but we are 150 employees. So what type of SVP are you, for Christ's sake? Exactly. You know, exactly. It's uh, exactly. Uh, this is another problem. Uh, we, we joke. Okay, a bit some about some, found, some founders use it for sales, right? Because they cannot yes. pay the right salary, so they give a title, and some. Some employees, I think, appreciate it that they can write SVP, for instance, right? Yeah. Um, even if the scope would maybe be a lead role or a VP role or, or not even a VP, but a, a, a lead role yeah, or a IC role. But personally, <laughs> I'm against it, Thomas. If you That's want, good. Uh, you can have your opinion there. And that, this is why we're talking. Well, what's your opinion on that? Selling job titles instead of paying um, as, a, 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 as maybe the market should pay. What, what's your opinion on that? Also, the type of culture that you are... Um, instilling in the organization because somebody that is joining a startup and they are happy to be an SVP and all this type of thing then what you do is a vicious circle of job title chasing and also you create a hierarchy type of mentality so I'm an SVP and I will report to the director what they need to be doing whilst actually in a startup environment you need to be thinking the other way around guys I don't care about your title. Let's roll up the sleeves and make things done. And it is the mentality of we work together regardless of your level of seniority to make this company fly. And, and that's that's my view. And I, I, I am totally on Strato's side here. And I wanna I wanna add another pain point, right? And so you you have a startup and you you're paying you are titling or you're giving these people these high titles but of course you're not paying them what you know the, the you're not paying them what the market is actually paying right as you know that and then so as we grow we are then setting up this culture of underpaying people and then we will reach a curve in the road where guys we need to hire senior people okay sure let's hire a I don't know, uh, a senior analyst. 
but he wants more money than me. <laughs> I'm a SVP. Why, why, why is that happening? And, and that's the vicious cycle that you're starting. So, you know, again, going back to the point, one of the huge factors for a grading structure is your company size and stage of life, stage of cycle. What grades do you naturally need to customize for this company? There's so many tools. I agree. And, and also a also recommendation, um, Amiel, so what you said. Hi, uh, mm. One tool I can recommend or book, Elad Chill High Growth Handbook. There's okay. one section on hiring and it says you as a founder regularly or also as a leader should think, okay, when is the right time again to hire somebody more experienced, more expensive than me? Under me, I can just be the manager, but don't have to be better in everything. And I can pay somebody 30, 50% more. The person's reporting into me. Why not having a learning mindset and say, okay, nice. I get all the information, all the experience now. And I make sure that I enable and organize everything around that this person can do their job, he or she or whatever. Right. And this is the mindset you need for that. And see, I see it so many times when this narrow thinking executives say, Ah, we cannot hire this person because this person would earn more than me. No. <laughs> and at the end, they are just not happy maybe with their own salary, but are not able to address it and be transparent about it. Yeah. 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 Uh, Thomas, it's, it's the approach of ultimately you're as successful as uh, uh, the team below you. So if yeah. you bring yeah. in people that they can really help everything grow. And if you're a founder, let's be honest, guys. These guys, they will not make their money from their salaries. As a founder, you don't make your money from the salary. You make your money from the stock. So salary is something that covers maybe your day-to-day -day needs. Uh, but the people that you will bring on board are the ones that they will help you move from stage A to stage B. From stage B, maybe they'll help you do a leap to move to stage E. So you need to bring people that, depending on the stage you are, they are fulfilling these requirements and they have the the knowledge and the experience and the expertise. Uh, so, I don't know. It's uh, Let's jump to another topic, incentives. Ooh. <laughs> so, does it make sense having them and how to stay up to date with the whole incentive schemes, nice. benefits, offerings, implementation, and so on, and overall, what is an incentive? Yeah, I think this is where me and Emil, we might share different views. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I am I am actively not a fan of incentives, as I said before. I I am yeah. a fan of sales incentives. I get it, right? Those are money driven. They need that kind of you know driver, motivator, engagement piece. So I get it. You know your fifty fifty splits, your sixty forty splits. Absolutely get it. But your average, now I say average, your normal skilled professional role does not require an incentive, whether it be monthly, annually, biannually, to drive engagement. Pay people fairly according to your market and according to your company strategy and according to how much you can afford. You be transparent with them and say, hey, John Bloke, this is how much you're getting paid because this is a salary range. This is where we see you having impact and how that reflects. And this is what it is. Do you accept? 
Hey, company A, I accept. Right, conversation over. Let's focus on driving impact. Why do we need to have incentives and driving? Well, this is a company target of, let's say, I don't know, net revenue. But how am I impacting net revenue? I don't have a direct impact on net revenue. Why am I being involved in this scheme? Now, flip side, if it's a profit sharing scheme, I get it. Okay, we as a company decide we've hit profit. We want to, you know, dish out some money. Okay, fine. But still, do not use it as an uh, a motivator or an engagement piece. That's my problem with incentives. People use them incorrectly. And that is why I'm against them. That's all. That's my opinion. <laughs> Stratos, what's your opinion? No, I hear Emil and I think... Um... You've uh, experienced a lot of bad incentives. <laughs> that's that's what, what I have to say. Uh, I'm a big fan of incentives, and I think they can drive the right behaviors. The problem is that if they are not done correctly, uh, it's uh, multiple times the worst behavior of somebody popping up. And I break the incentives into you know your commercial incentives, which is exactly what Emil said for the salespeople. And these are the ones that they will help you grow your revenue. Then I break them into performance incentives where you go in and you differentiate individual performance within a team. Uh, and uh, you say, okay, you are a star performer, Thomas. Emil is a regular performer. Strato, you really need to, to pick up the slack because you're falling behind. And if it's only the salary that they have or the salary view, there is no way of really showing that in monetary terms. And I think this is where you come in and you can incentivize that. See, I, I get your point, Emil, that if, if you go in and you... Yeah, yeah, but this is how it is. The thing is, if you, have, uh, if you don't have talent management, if you don't have performance matrices, and you go in and you say, all three of us, we will be measured on the... Uh, on the gross margin, and all three of us, we sit, uh, let's say, in finance, or we are in a call center, we're going to be like, but this is irrelevant to us. So ultimately, I think the point is, you need to create something that people could relate to, yeah. and they can understand how they can influence it. And uh, then it could be impactful. Yeah. Uh, but then the, and the other thing that I have to say is that it's the long-term incentive component, which is, so I break down the incentives into backwards-looking and forwards-looking. So the, the commissions and the bonuses and the different short-term incentives, which is about maximum 12-month period, they give you money for what you have achieved in the past period. So it's, as I said, Thomas, you've done a fantastic job the past year. Here is uh, 5,000 euros for you. Was the long-term incentive? No, I mean, it doesn't agree about you. You've done a great job. It's okay. I am a manager and I agree about it. Sure, like it. No. And then the long-term incentive, it says to you, okay, I give you something, but it's a carrot for the future. Yes. So um, I, give you, yeah. I yeah. give you 2,000 potentially, but if you work hard, you can make them 20. Yeah. And this is right. a future carrot. But for that to be impactful, you need to give it to jobs that they feel that they have an impact for the future. Okay. So if but you move too much lower in the pegging order, 
and in the food chain you start diluting it i think too much and they think that okay i just wait for other people to to make decisions and go for it i i, I like that approach uh, my only concern with that is you then run into creating individual long-term incentive plans and so the the cons of that would be you need a team you need more people to try and manage and drive that because there will come a no, time no, no, where, really... there will come a time where some people think... will say that that i have no impact on that why are you dangling that carrot in front of me no no, no don't get me wrong what i'm saying is your long-term incentive is your long-term incentive but then when you move it and and ultimately it will be linked to the specific uh, KPIs for everybody. Yes. Right. Okay. So would you would you then have an objective way of selecting different roles, or would you group everyone as in this group has impact on these metrics and this is a long term incentive for them? So I'll tell you the way... before. Ah, okay. Before you answer. <laughs> Before you answer, I, exp I experienced this once, and Thomas, this might be interesting for you. So, you know, we have a, a, a you know, we have a structure, and so you say, above this level, will be eligible for a long-term incentive, and so we all have this common goal, right? Of course, the the payouts will be variable because it's different levels, and so that is your best-in-class LTIP for a specific population. Now, do you think that that is archaic or do you think we should go into an individualized LTIP plan for that population? No, the former. Exactly. So, <laughs> but what, I would also, no, but what I would also do is I would go in and say, you know what, Thomas, you're not eligible for that, but back to your performance components, I see you sitting in the high-performing yes. and the high-potential type of job. A type of individual, yeah. so you fall in this category, and I will yeah. choose, uh, let's say, ten people from who are not actually eligible for it, and they are my high potential, my hypos, and I will give them long-term incentive. Okay. So, so but this is the long-term incentive. That this is for the future. Now, mm -hmm. on the short-term incentive that it is for the bonus, it's purely to differentiate past performance, how you have been doing it in the past. And you go in and you use it as a, a performance differentiation and an acknowledgement of somebody who has done a great job within the team. So I'm aligned with Stratos here on that kind of short-term incentive, but I would go deeper in terms of if it's one-off. So let's not create like schemes. Let's not create like, you know, group plans. Let's, let's say you have a team or a function and they have a goal, okay, let's try and incentivize that goal. I agree with that, wholeheartedly agree with that because it's clear as day, if we achieve this goal, the company achieves something and you are directly impacting that goal, right? There's a budget assigned for, let's say, four people. And then we even do what you said, Stratos, is amongst those four people, I don't know, James, Jamie, Megan, you guys were actually doing the job properly. Here you go. Uh, Dallas, you weren't doing anything at all. So sorry, nothing for you. <laughs> so yes. I, I, I like I like that kind of incentive because it's not a company-wide scheme. It's not driving uh, false behaviors. For example, 
I'm only here for my bonus and then I leave as soon as it's paid, right? Because that's the kind of behavior it drives. This is more, okay, guys, we have this project coming up. This is the end goal. This is the end result. We're trying to incentivize you to actually achieve that because we know whatever we achieve from that will cover for the bonus. Of course, we're not talking about affordability here as yet, right? What, what, would be also super, <laughs> what would be super interesting for me personally, what do you think about sign-on bonuses? I can go for it. So ultimately, it goes back to what is your talent strategy? Where do you try to pinch talent from? Uh, so if you're a small organization and uh, you try to take somebody from a much bigger player, so you do a, a like a, I used, I tend to call them an overhire sometimes to go in and to troubleshoot the challenges you're facing from Monday morning. This person has other financial commitments within that larger organization. So you need to buy them out. But to go in and to say, whoever comes in, there you go. It's a golden handshake. Uh, maybe not the most smart, smart way to, to spend your money. It, it's, it's also part of uh, the reward strategy as well, right? So for example, I've seen it, I've seen, I've seen some people use it as a, let's call it a top up. So, um, you know, you're hiring me, I want 120, um, but you'll say, here's 110, and then we pay you 10 grand as a sign-on bonus. So I don't like them, personally. Um, I am a fan of the buyouts, though. And again, as Strato said, spot on, it depends on where you're pinching people from, or as a matter of fact, you know where people are applying from as well, because somebody could be applying for a job and they know they have a, you know, a pending payment, right? Um, so, yeah. yeah. But Thank you. Thomas, to, to that point that Emil said, for me, having incentives also helps you control a bit your budget in general. And I'm not talking about the sales incentives or your, your sign-on incentives, but having incentives, what gives you is it gives you flexibility to bring somebody on a, uh, on a salary that pays a market rate, let's say. Let's say market rate. And then you follow an aggressive incentive of a large percentage linked to their salary or of x amount and when they perform well if you've done your modeling correctly it becomes self-funded but when they perform well and the team really sees that performance that is above and beyond the what they take back home is above market yeah so then automatically you protect them from potential it's a bit of a retention retention um it's a, it's, it's a sweetener in a way because what you say to them is look we as a company we deliver so we pass a certain threshold where we can pay this money and then you will be making 30 percent or 20 percent more to your salary if you continue performing in that high performance that you've been doing for the past year so it is a it's a big uh, Carrot, if they know where they are, uh, that they are delivering, and, and they can see the trajectory of the company, that they are financially healthy, and they deliver. So that, that threshold is constantly passed. But then what it means is that when there is a downturn, your finance, they, they look their balance sheet, and the fixed cost is not there. So they don't feel that they need to be very aggressive when it comes to reducing workforce. So it gives you that flexibility to adjust in a period of a downturn. That's why I like incentives a lot. So if you don't throw all your money 
on fixed salaries. Yeah, I, I am agreeing, but I'm still disagreeing because I, maybe I have bad experiences with it. Um, and, and I think it's probably, um, as I said, the, the mercenary behavior, the, the incorrect behavior that it drives. Um, I am not a fan of that. That is not, that is not what I like. So, um, but again, if that's the company's culture, if that's what we want, then hey, do it. Absolutely do it. But if you want to really, you know, retain, keep people, you know, have a, a decent, I don't say decent, but have a culture where people are not genuinely focused on just getting a bonus and leaving, getting a bonus and leaving, then I don't think it's up there. <laughs> just yeah. to add something on Emil's point, just to see that he is um, uh, uh, very honest on what he says, and I think he has a valid point. I've been in uh, companies where they actually set up company objective, department, of, uh, functional objectives, department objective, personal objective, and then you, you have a percentage of each one of them that calculates your bonus. And what happens is uh, to start with, until everything is finalized, um, assessed whether it really makes sense and closed to be signed off, you're six months from the point that uh, the financial year has started. And then the objectives of six months ago to your objectives actually now, they have changed so dramatically, so they yeah, become yeah. obsolete. So the person thinks it is a joke. And then you end up setting, saying another... Setting, when I see this, then I know that you're set up for failure. Exactly. Exactly. But, it's too static. But this, to me, it's an incorrect use of a tool that makes the tool fail rather than the tool itself. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yes. I, I, will, I will agree to that, yeah. yeah. Okay, let's talk about effectiveness. Um, how do you measure the effectiveness of a total rewards philosophy function program incentives, bonuses? My answer to that is it depends on what your company strategy is, right? Um, well, one part of the element is it depends on what your company strategy is. So let, let, let's make this tangible. As I, I like that phrase, Thomas. If part of your strategy is to grow, you are, you are in hiring phase or hiring mode and also retain people, then to measure one part of the effectiveness will be how many rejections do we get from offers uh, based on compensation? How many people actually leave the company based on compensation or based on, let's call it, total reward? So comp benefits, recognition, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think the real question is, do you have the systems in place to actually measure how effective reward is first before you actually throw out what metric do we want to look at? So are you me uh, is your talent team recording all this data? Is your, is your uh, people operations team and your managers ensuring that exit interviews are actually being done and being done sincerely, not just you know emotionally and, and a lot of nonsense that's written in them and you can't use that data? Um, and so... If those things are lined up, then honestly, we can measure reward a lot of ways. But then going back to my first point, it depends on what the company strategy is at that point in time. Mm. Ebita. <laughs> yeah. But let's say profitable growth. 
how would an effective reward scheme look like if you really want to grow um, profitable? Because currently that's really a, a thing. Yeah. I, Two I years ago, look, nobody would care. Now it's a thing. I would look at four dimensions, to be honest. Number one is going to be the employee dimension, where you can calculate it with an MPS, with the attrition and attraction matrices. And let's assume that they exist, or if they don't exist, you start building on it. And it's what Amy will say, okay, link with the recruitment team to start looking at it properly. Then I would put the company culture dimension to link it back to what we're talking in the first topic about the equal pay. So when you talk about a diverse and inclusive uh, company and uh, also you talk about uh, a company that it is uh, uh, providing people with a lot of uh, space uh, to work-life balance, uh, everything, and uh, they help them on that. Okay, do you have the right policies and frameworks in place to really walk the talk, to, to really work hand-in-hand hand with that company culture, supposedly? Uh, and then it is the commercial dimension that I would put, which is how can you put different things in place to help the growth of the company in commercial values while supporting the right behaviors? Because Emil rightly so pointed multiple times that during incentives, uh, very often we drive the wrong behaviors. And uh, it's either people fighting for the bigger dollar uh, or as soon as they get the dollars, they run. So how do you put these commercial components in to make sure that you have the right behaviors. And, uh, and then lastly, it's the financial component I would do. So it's financial and budgeting dimension, which has to do how much you, you know, you manage to work things out with a specific budget and how agile you are with the reward framework to operate when things, they go a bit south. So when money is not, uh, you know, uh, coming as freely as they used to, uh, how creative you are. And uh, the first one, the employee dimension, it's uh, tangible. You can see with data components, you, with your MPSs, with your attrition and your attraction. Whereas the other components, I see it more uh, with direct feedback from different stakeholders or from employees. And okay, the company culture dimension, you can still include it in the MPS, but it needs to be feedback from leaders. It needs to be feedback from managers on how does it work and how does it really make a difference. You need to be receiving feedback from the DNI communities. And uh, we, we're also forgetting something huge here. Okay, um, let, let, let's let's let, let's flag this. In case you have any feedback or anything you want to share with me, please send me an email on thomas at peoplewise.com or hit me up on LinkedIn. And in case you really enjoy the show, please subscribe. I would really appreciate it. It's all good and well to have a reward philosophy and a reward structure and, you know, principles and designs. But are we using it properly first? As in, do our leaders understand it? Do they know how to apply the principles? Do they know how to apply the objective, make objective decisions, right? Don't don't compare a reward philosophy on see if it's effective if we're not even using it correctly. If we're not using it correctly, or let me use the word objectively, then you're being unfair to a reward function. And let, let me let me paint this in a in in more in more uh, 
according to Thomas, tangible terms. Um, <laughs> if if you are complaining that our salaries are not competitive, you are constantly complaining salaries are not competitive, but the reward team is showing you an actual graph that your normal distribution curve, and by that I mean if you take your salary ranges and you have below minimum, minimum, medium, upper quartile, above maximum, right? And you put your normal bell curve. And when I say normal, I just mean your standard bell curve. That's an assumption that we are using our salary ranges properly. And if your bell curve is aligned from the top end all the way to the bottom, but you are telling me that our salaries are not competitive, then I'm sorry, you're being unfair to the reward function because you are not using our salary ranges properly. So going back to my point, if you're going to measure how effective a reward function and our philosophies are, please let us work together and collaborate to make sure, A, the business understands what reward is, and B, we are using our philosophy objectively, and it is then we can test if it's working or not. That was what I need to flag because, again, you can measure us on so many different things. I was only focused on employee. Stratos just gave me three brand new ideas, right? And so, again, if are we using it correctly, then we go to the measure. Sure. And I think, Thomas, I, I, I agree 100% with Emil. It's like uh, you ask me for a recipe to make a curry, and then I say to you, I just send you a text message on WhatsApp on the recipe. It's very different to send you for your execution to Daniel's execution of that recipe. And that's why maybe you sit on YouTube or on Instagram and you look at the guy actually doing the recipe and he gives you the exact grams that they put and you show, you see what is the process. And I think it's the educational piece that a lot of times is missing that actually makes the recipe not as successful as expected. And, you know, the other, the other thing also is uh, accepting the fact that the first time you do it is not going to taste as great as it will be the 15th time. So it takes time to build the skills. Yeah, 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 yeah. We also have some listener questions. Um, so one, for instance, is coming more into a direction of why do annual incentives um exist and does it make sense having them i think that was was kind of um, coming from a listener question um, but we also have some more so can we shortly um, touch touch base on that for instance does esop add value to the <laughs> value proposition <laughs> overall great I can go the what is the difference <laughs> i can go for the for the esop i think to me esop uh, makes sense when you're a startup The problem is that a lot of people think that uh, they're a 2,000 employee organization and they're still startup. No, this is, this is a business. You're a medium-sized organization. So you need to be thinking differently. And the reason that the ESOP, VSOP, or any other form of that makes sense when you're a startup is because every euro, dollar, pound counts. So what you say is, Thomas and Emil, um, Let's try something and let's minimize the, the, the cost of it as much as possible to see if it's going to fly. But if it flies, we maximize the benefit out of that. 
That's why I will give you a future benefit if it flies. And this is why you have the VSOP and the ASOP. Now, when you have a guy that he is, uh, I don't know, your uh, HR administrator, and they make $20,000 per year, and you say to them, if you stick around for five years and we manage to sell the company for billions, um, you will be getting 10,000 euros more after these five years. It's like, dude, whatever, it's irrelevant to me. So the purpose of that is, is, is not relevant. So that's why you need to really go back and understand the basics of everything that you put in place. So the VSOPs is to give uh, large financial returns to people that they join you when the risk is very high, whilst maintaining your cost base low. So if it flies, you make a lot of money. If it doesn't fly, you don't lose money, but we gave it an opportunity by keeping our, our baseline low when it came to the cost. I don't know, Emil, your thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I, I agree, but I'll quickly add, it's also a mindset of the individual. And so uh, this has an impact on our talent strategy. If you are not uh, deciphering from your interviews, if this person actually is here for the long term, or if they're just here for the short term, ESOP is not going to keep them, right? It's just not going to keep them. Um, one of the biggest challenges I have with ESOP is the lack of understanding, right? Some people just don't like it and some people get it. So if you are hiring people who don't like it, then of course, again, going back to my point, we are not using the reward philosophy properly. <laughs> you are always going to have attrition and people are going to say, well, the ESOP didn't keep me here. Just saying. Cool. <laughs> Next question from Vicky. What were the most successful examples of pay for performance in your experience, um, aside from sales compensation? Oh, wow. I would say it's what I, what I mentioned before. It was something that is linked to your individual performance within a team. So you mm -hmm. say, okay, if your EBITDA is uh, X as a company, we start paying bonus. And if you want to include a, a a profit sharing component, you can say if we exceed our EBITDA target of let's say 100 million, if we make it 130 this year, we will give to the different pool of money 20% more. And then you go in and you say, okay, in the different teams that I have, you can make from 200% of your bonus up target down to zero. So Thomas, back to our example, you could be making 25K, Emil will be making uh, 10, and I will be making zero because I didn't perform. And this is for me something that really shows, you know, Thomas was a standout performer. If we put him, because ultimately everybody needs to be able to feel confident and comfortable about that. So if I put you in the open space and say Thomas was an outstanding performer, and that's why he got paid much more, Everybody will agree, yeah, Thomas was the example. Emil, well, he did his job fantastic. And Mia was falling behind, so tough luck. I get zero. I hope to become Emil in the future and maybe work harder to become a Thomas at some point. Okay, to me it's, what would be... To me it's, yeah, so sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, sure. No, just shortly, because we need to go a bit rapid. 
to me it's it's not the it's not the the design of the payout to me the the differentiator between a good and a bad pay for performance culture is how you objectively measure your performance right because uh you have to be fair and you have to be constructive you can't be i like you you will get two times i don't like you you will get half times it's it's the performance rating or the performance measurement if that is objective and clear and if employees understand it, then your pay for performance culture will succeed. Totally. And you need to have both what and how. Yes. So you need to have a, a behavior yes. factor that is, is triggered into that. But the other thing is that you need to be very careful not to overcomplicate it. Because yes. when you overcomplicate, yes. the, the whole point is it needs to be very simple for everybody to understand it. Otherwise, it's not an incentive. Mm-hmm. If it is a blurry then you have lost the people before you even launch it. It needs to be, you need to be measured. It needs to be smart. So it's a specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and timed, uh, ultimately. This is uh, as with everything that you set up on your KPIs. And uh, then one, you need one to have... One inviting question. You both read the book from Simon Sinek, Why, How, What, right? The Golden Circle <laughs> book. I see that. I hear that. Sorry, Stratus, for chopping in, but we need to move. No, 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 it's a, a very valid point. I, now that you mentioned books, for me, I'm a big believer of the humanocracy. I don't know if you've read about it. No. no. So, humanocracy, for me, it's a, it shows you different organizations that they treat their employees with... Uh, uh, they treat them like adults. So, you treat them like they are grown-ups, and you don't try to spoon-feed them, and you empower them, and you give them ownership. And you reward that ownership and you reward them uh, tangibly and intangibly. And these organizations, they are successful. You don't micromanage people. You don't build layers and structures or you don't have ivory towers. You give them opportunities and then you will be shocked to see, you know, how many bright ideas that will come up and how successful these organizations will be financially. Yeah. N- another question. Are you ready for it? Go for mm-hmm. it. What would be your tips on dealing with tricky stakeholders? F- so, for instance, compensation is a tricky area in general and financial constraints will be a factor um, that is always there at some point, unless with an Amiel's current company. <laughs> I can go for it if you want. Yeah, for me, it's... it's uh, uh, communication, communication, communication. And it might mean that uh, suddenly you will shift 80% of your time at uh, bringing people along the journey and listening to them. Because sometimes, you know, some of the stakeholders, they say uh, things that you don't like. And uh, when you switch off, you think that, okay, they just don't like it. Just sit back and listen why, what is the experience and what is the driver behind. Maybe they had a very bitter experience. And look at me and Emil, we have different view on the incentives, but I can sense that Emil had a very bitter experience on incentives. So my thinking is, okay, I'll spend more time with Emil to really show him with tangible examples, because I know that he's an analytical guy, he likes his numbers, to show him how it could be slightly better to what he perceives it is. I'm not, I'm not going to have my expectations that I will bring him next year 
in a podcast and he will be wearing a, a t-shirt i love incentives no but just to bring him to bring him along the journey and it is uh, uh, treating them with respect and openly listen to them and then bring them along bring them part of the decision making give them all the information don't for me information sharing is important so never go into the thing okay i hold my cards it's not yeah, a poker game proactive yeah. transparency yeah yeah it, it, it's it's fine it's finding the why most most tricky stakeholders it's nine out of ten times they're approaching it from an emotional standpoint so as as, as stratos said you need to listen show that you're listening and just find the why and once you find the why you then have an avenue or a door to enter to get into and solving their challenge and solving their issue most of the times it becomes an opportunity for you to actually learn because you know <laughs> it, 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 it's so emotional this topic right it's so subjective and it, it just stems from that it normally nine out of ten times stem from a bad experience or you know i care too much about my people or you know i might be selfish and i want this to work for me as well and not just for the company so you know it, it's it, it's trying to find a solution i always think of it as I'm not here to stifle you. Yes, I'm giving you a structure, right? It's like your house. You have a house. There are four walls. If you want a white wall, if you want a blue wall, if you want a yellow ceiling, we can do that. Let's just do it together. <laughs> but let's stay. You wanted a yellow ceiling in that house, right? Of it's yellow. Of course. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And I feel jealous that his name is on the yellow ceiling. You know, it looks like uh, it's, uh, it's perfectly designed. It looks like the ivory tower. You even have air conditioned yellow ceiling. Um, Amil, are you sitting in the ivory tower? Whatever, whatever. whatever. <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Okay. <laughs> another one, another one. It's a bit of more yep. um, with more context. So Bella is asking, how did COVID and changing to remote world change the comp landscape. What we can see as recruiters is that candidates in cheaper brackets um, or Eastern European countries, for instance, are already asking for the same salary like the Western European candidate, uh, candidates. There is now a considerate, considerably smaller gap in comp throughout Europe because remote work allowed developers to work from home, Hungary, Bosnia, Bulgaria, etc. For a German, US, Dutch salary, being on a global contract, is this phenomenon known taken into consideration by our comp and band specialists, how do they see it? I can go so, for it, Emil, if you want. Oh, yeah, go okay. for it. I'll go. So it is known, Thomas, of course it is. Um, and I, I'll only speak from my approach and my opinion here. Um, this boils down to affordability in from my perspective, okay? Um, because... I, I don't see this as a comp strategy. I don't see us, you know, we're based in Germany. Uh, sorry, let's use another cheaper country. We're based in Poland, but uh, we are paying German salaries. That, that to me will never be a logical or a sensible comp strategy for me. But if we could afford it, then by all means, let's do it. So for me personally, this boils down to your CFO and yourself having a discussion around financial affordability that's my take now on. i read simon sinek why why would you do that why it, it it has to do with your with your strategy i would say what is your but, strategy but, 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 is it, what, 
what is your strategy like what are you trying to achieve are, are we are we okay so hold on are we going to let employees manhandle our company and tell us well i want this amount of money and you know strangle hold us as a strangle i don't think we should do that i think you know we should look look for the look for the uh you know the the the, the full market and see where see where things are really playing and actually look for candidates that will fit into our strategy or look for more candidates that fit into our strategy. Let's not look for candidates that don't fit into our strategy and turn our bell curve upside down. That that This is just my approach, right? It, again, it still boils down to affordability. If we can afford it, if we can measure performance, if we can say, I'm going to pay you 200 grand, but you are bringing me in, I don't know, 2 million, absolutely. I have a friend who uses this um, this phrase, uh, higher fast, uh, higher fast, fire fast, <laughs> right? If you're not performing and we're paying you high salaries, goodbye, goodbye. But some companies, we pay these high salaries and we, 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 we harbor this dead wood. <laughs> we let this dead wood float in the water. So again, it depends on the strategy. That's my take. For me, Thomas, is 100% uh, uh, what Emil says on the strategy. Because first of all, you need to understand what are the... Okay, we're talking about tech jobs over here, but an organization doesn't have only tech jobs. So not all jobs that have been impacted the same way. This is what I have seen from a reward perspective. So your, your tech jobs, they were massively inflated globally. Uh, yes, this is true, but not all jobs they have been inflated the same yes and now what happens is because this is one dimension if we look at it back to the strategy that Emil was talking about a lot maybe you want to say for uh, for us to grow as an organization i need to have the cream of the cream globally because if i focus on the talent pool in my country i cannot grow with the pace i want so i make a conscious strategic decision to invest and to go out and take the best talent out of all the European countries. Okay, let's be honest. Silicon Valley, you will never compete if you're based in Europe. Because then, no, it's true. It's true. Let's be honest. So we're talking about a pan-European uh, type of uh, survey that you go in and you blend and you say, this is what I, I follow. That has, uh, of course, uh, knock-on effect on people having expectations because people talk, having expectations to be paid uh, maybe the highest denominator, German salaries or Dutch salaries or British salaries, even though they are on cheaper location. So some companies, they do it, some companies, they don't. And this goes back to what is their strategy. And their strategy is linked to where do I want to be and how much money do I have? Uh, and the other thing, Thomas... Yeah, but this is what it is, because maybe you cut your cost from somewhere else. Yeah, you cut your cost from somewhere else to go and to buy expensive talent. And the other thing is, uh, yes, salary inflation has been higher in the likes of Poland, uh, in the likes of Hungary, and also in South Europe. Salaries, they are not as low as they used to be five years ago when it comes to the tech jobs. So then it is another strategic decision. Where would you like to tap your talent from? And uh, I have some friends that they work in the cybersecurity business 
and they know that uh, there is not enough talent. So they made the conscious decision and they say, for us, it doesn't make sense. No matter where I go and hire talent in Europe, I will never be able to do that. So how we can be more creative on how we bring people on board? And then how do I build a talent pipeline by building a cybersecurity university? So I go and I bring people from university to my accelerator to be able to do a job. So you need to be a bit more creative just than just go in and pay the cream of the cream. So, and, and then to add on that, right? it can't just be the reward team to come up with the creative solutions, right? There there are other factors included in volunteer, mm. right? Like there is leadership, there is company culture, there is trust, there is development, right? There, there, there are all these other things that, you know, I know people only think reward, reward, reward. No, it's a cross-functional, it's a cross-company situation that we also need to have to in order to be creative. The reason why reward is always attacked is because, and let's use the Silicon Valley uh, example that Shato says, you have someone over there earning total comp, I don't know, 400,000 US dollars a year. No way in hell we're going to compete with that in Europe, right? And this is not a C-suite member. This is just a, a let's call them a principal developer or whatever. Um, and so, you know, it, it's it's trying to explain the whole package, the whole company, Right. That as well, we need help with. Like if it's one thing I don't see, and I, I mean, I try to do it now is I put my hand up and I say, guys, I need help <laughs> from, from, you know, LED. I need help from you, the hierarchy of this company. You are trickling down the company's culture. Right now, I get it. If you want to hire mercenaries, I will act accordingly. <laughs> but if you don't want to hire mercenaries, then please. Stop bringing it as a challenge. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> no, Thomas, he, he, he is right. A reward is an enabler of a wider decision. It's an mm. enabler. I think a lot oh, of I people, they, they confuse it that reward is the decision maker. No, no, no it's definitely not. Definitely not. It's the manager. They have to take ownership and depending on what level, right? It's the management all the time. Yes. And the owner. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and as I always say, okay. understanding have... that the decisions you make today have an impact on tomorrow. Uh, correct, down the line. So if you go and you do exceptions over exceptions, ultimately you generate a, a domino effect of exceptions and you need to deal with it in the future. Yeah, last question. Tips on young professionals in the rewards field. What do you have? Top three. I can go for it. <laughs> Curiosity. <laughs> For me, it is being curious and not stick to, you know, oh, this is what I've seen happening and this is uh, this works or doesn't work. Be curious constantly. Then also make sure that you're in a space that things happen, projects happen. And uh, I, I personally think that it's uh, fundamental to go to a place that... Uh, they are happy to build things, allow them to break and rebuild again. If you go to a place that everything is set, if you go to, let's say, a Volkswagen that it is already established a, a way um, beautifully oiled machine, you're not going to learn from uh, the painful points of really setting up the engine from scratch, failing, resetting it up again. Uh, and lastly, make sure that you choose your manager. 
So if uh, the manager you have, uh, you don't click, uh, it's going to be hell. Uh, so choose a manager that you can aspire to learn from and they can help you to push your own personal boundaries. I'm, I'm going to add to that. So learn to tell a story because you are you are in a role that you need to negotiate and influence. So learn to tell a story. You need to build emotional intelligence and resilience. You are in a subjective field, right? And you are there to apply objectivity, right? And last but not least, do not lose your sense of humor. Don't turn into a robot, <laughs> right? And try to keep your sense of humor, right? Because I'm telling you, it 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 is a huge subjective emotional weight that you have to balance Monday to Friday. So that those are my those are my three. I'm not I'm not discrediting uh, Stratosizone. They are very valid, um, but uh, they are. I'm adding to that. So let's say six tips. <laughs> nice. And I, I support Emil's uh, points 100%. Thank you so much. That was our new format. We will keep adding to that. And it was really fun. Um, and we had very in-depth discussions. Um, so thank you so much. Thanks, Thomas. Thanks, Thomas.